Welcome to Archetypes and Anarchy, a podcast created by me, Courtney Floyd, and my Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon in spring of 2018. Episode 8, Puss in Boots. archetypes episode we're doing the story of puss in boots story type 545b i am mackenzie and i'm a human physiology major and i'm a junior i'm julia and i'm also a human physiology major and i'm a freshman i'm shannon i'm a senior and i'm a journalism major i'm michael and i'm a journalism and political science double major we're gonna start by talking about the history of publishing and oral history the master cat or puss in boots is a fairy tale by charles perrault and was published in 1697 Charles was a member of the Académie Franchière. Through his upcoming as an intellectual in this organization, he was able to produce a piece called Parallels Between the Ancients. This piece helped with the Age of Enlightenment in Europe and allowed Europe to be open to fairy tales. Perrault published very well-known pieces in a book titled Stories or Tales from Time Past with Morals, Tales of Mother Goose. However, he published the book under his son's name, Pierre. Even though the version of Puss in Boots that is most familiar today was written by Perrault, the original Puss in Boots story was a fable written by Giovanni Straporola. Perrault's version is very similar to the original in the sense that he is still trying to help the youngest son. However, this version is the first version to feature the boots and an ogre. Also, Perrault's version has the cat to be a very sneaky and clever character, which is then a common theme for many other stories such as Jack Schwar's marriage. Several of the classic archetypes discussed in Jack Heckle's article, Fairy Tales Most Wanted, the five most common character types, are present in Charles Perrault's Puss in Boots. While Heckle's article presents us with a few of the most common archetypes, Jane Gary's book, Archetypes and Motifs in Folklore and Literature, gives us a thorough analysis of important archetypes that Heckle's article doesn't cover, such as the cat's role of the trickster. The story's main characters, the miller's son, who's also known as the Marquise of Carabas, the cat, the king, and the king's daughter, all fit archetypes that are brought up within these texts. The cat in the Puss in Boots is a classic example of a trickster archetype. According to Gary, trickster characters often take the form of animals, with some of the classic examples being coyotes, hares, ravens, and spiders. In their paper, Expert Witnesses in Jungian Archetypes, Juan Antonio Llave and Thomas Gordon Guthale say the trickster takes the form of a hero, a savior, victim, or a perpetrator, or as a joker or fool in folklore. In Puss in Boots, it's clear that the cat takes the role as the savior for the Lord of Marquis. Through establishing a rapport with the king, the cat is able to build credibility and make the rest of his explanations seem legitimate. The cat isn't known just for tricking the king. He also outsmarts the ogre when he asks him to prove that he can turn himself into a mouse and then he eats them in order to take the castle for the Lord of Marquis. The cat's owner, the so-called Marquis of Carabas, is unknowingly the charming prince. Heckel describes the charming prince archetype as, quote, inevitably dashing and handsome, unquote, and that the young women will want to marry them shortly after meeting them. In Puss in Boots, this is exactly what happens. Perrault describes the prince as very handsome and well-proportioned. 
Once he was dressed in the king's robes, the king's daughter took interest in him and fell in love with him quite quickly. At the end of the story, the Marquise ends up marrying the king's daughter. The princess is a classic example of Heckel's example of the quote, beautiful damsel, unquote. Heckel says that all princesses are described as beautiful, but few stories hyperbolically exaggerate their beauty. Some stories, such as Rapunzel's Sleeping Beauty, choose to exaggerate the details. Puss in Boots give the same description of the princesses in the past stories. The king's daughter is described as the most beautiful princess in the world in Puss in Boots. The king is a great example of what Heckel calls the guileless fool. And guile means something that is insidious, cunning, deceit, or treachery. Heckel says that this character is, quote, marked by an uncommon lack of common sense, an honesty of spirit, and an almost preternatural luck, unquote. The king is easily tricked into believing that Marquise actually does own all of the land. It is expected that the king should know what other rulers own the land around him, so he should be able to see through the lies that the cat's telling. The cultural context of this story. Um, the story was written in the 1600s. In this story, the gifts the cat gives to the king were rabbits and partridges, taking presents and intervals for the king on behalf of his master. Animals like rabbits and birds were considered high-class food at the time of the story. Throughout this story, the cat tricks the king into thinking the lord of Marquise had lots of land, something that was also of great importance during this time and showed nobility in this age. The cat tricks the king into buying the lord Marquis new suits, which also shows the importance that fine clothing had during the time of this story. At the end of the story, there are two poems that seem to present two morals of the story, one line being, be the advantage never so great of owning a superb estate. At the time of this story, owning land, dressing nice, and having good manners were what one needed to achieve nobility or be seen as wealthy. Our society and culture today, in a sense, are similar. Rather than bringing someone rabbits or partridges, if you take someone out to a nice dinner or an expensive meal, this is usually a sign of wealth and high class, and it's also used as a way for business transactions and to form relationships of sorts. In terms of being nobility or being someone of importance, I would say that dressing nicely and owning land are still primary ways people show wealth and people perceive wealthy people. It is hard to find a good positive moral for this story as the protagonist lies, cheats, and tricks people into getting what he wants. It is hard to find a positive moral for this story as the protagonist lies, cheats, and tricks people into getting what he wants. I'm not sure if this is what the culture back in this age wanted to portray, that lying and cheating was a, a good positive thing, but our primary use for fairy tales today is to convey morals to young children, which is why the story has since been adapted to have a clear, positive moral. Um, so some historical context, like Julia mentioned, Puss in Boots was originally published in the late 1600s. Uh, more specifically, Charles Perrault released Puss in Boots through History ou Contest ou Temps Pass in 1697. Puss in Boots was originally published as The Master Cat. A different version of the story appears in Strapaola's Piacevelle Noti in the 16th century. The story titled um, Constantino Fortunato. Uh, scholars believe that Strapaola's story was derived from oral folklore. However, there is no evidence to validate this theory. Another author, Gambantista Basile, created a similar trickster cat story in the 17th century. This story was titled Gaglioso. 
This tale was translated into Caglioso. Uh, the fairy tale and trickster cat archetype has been circulating parts of Europe. Uh, more specifically, it has been circulating across Siberia, onward to India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. What's really interesting is that the further the story travels from Europe, the more variations the story takes on. Now we'll be performing the uh, story of Puss in Boots. A miller bequeathed to his three sons all he possessed of worldly goods, which consisted only of his mill, his ass, and his cat. It did not take long to divide the property, and neither notary nor attorney was called in. They would soon have eaten up the poor little patrimony. The eldest son had the mill, the second son the ass, and the youngest had nothing but the cat. The latter was very disconsolate at having such a poor share of the inheritance. My brothers may be able to earn an honest livelihood by entering in, into partnership, but as for me, when I have eaten my cat and made a muff of his skin, I must die of hunger. The cat, who had heard the speech, although he had not appeared to do so, said to him with a sedate and serious air, Do not be troubled, master. You have only to give me a bag and get a pair of boots made for me in which I can go among the bushes, and you will see that you are not left so badly off as you believe. Though his master did not place much reliance on the cat's words, he had seen him play such cunning tricks and catching rats and mice when he would hang himself by the heels or hide in the flower pretending to be dead, that he was not altogether without hope of being helped by him or out of his distress. As soon as the cat had what he had asked for, he boldly pulled on his boots and hanging his bag round his neck, he took the strings off of it in his forepaws and started off for a warren where there were a great number of rabbits. He put some bran and sow thistles in his bag, and then stretching himself out as if he were dead, he waited till some young rabbit, little versed in the wiles of the world, should come and poke his way into the bag, in order to eat what was inside of it. He heartily laid himself down before he had the pleasure of seeing a young scatterbrain of rabbit get into the bag, whereupon Master Cat pulled the strings, caught it, and killed without mercy. Proud of his prey, he went to the palace and asked to speak to the king. He was ushered upstairs and into the state apartment. After making a low brow to the king, he said, Sir, here is a wild rabbit which my lord the Marquis of Carabas, for such was the title he had taken a fancy to give to his master, has ordered me to present with his duty to your majesty. Tell your master that I thank him and am pleased with his gift. Another day, he went and hid himself in the wheat, keeping the mouth of his bag open as before, and as soon as he saw that a brace of partridges had run inside, he pulled the string and took them both. He went immediately and presented them to the king, as he had the rabbits. The king was equally grateful at receiving the brace of partridges and ordered a drink to be given to him. For the next two or three months, the cat continued in this manner, taking presents of game at intervals to the king, as if from his master. One day, when he knew the king was going to drive to the banks of the river with his daughter, the most beautiful princess in the world, he said to the master, If you will follow my advice, your fortune is made. You have only to go and bathe in a part of the river I will point out to you, and then leave the rest to me. The Marquise of Carabas did as his cat advised him, without knowing what good would come of it. While he was bathing, the king passed by, and the cat began to call out with all his might. Help, help, my lord, the Marquis of Carabas is drowning. Hearing the cry, the king looked out of the coach window, and recognizing the cat who had so often brought him game, he ordered his guards to help of my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. Whilst they were getting the poor Marquis out of the river, the cat went up to the royal coach and told the king that while his masters had been bathing, 
Some robbers came out and carried off his clothes, although he had shouted, Stop, thief! The rogue had hidden himself under a large stone. The king immediately ordered the officers of his wardrobe to go and fetch one of the handsomest suits for my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. The king embraced him a thousand times, and as the clothes they dressed him in set off his good looks, for he was handsome and well-made, the Marquis of Carabas took quite the fancy of the king's daughter. After he had had cast two or three respectful and rather tender glances towards her, she fell very much in love with him. The king insisted upon his getting into the coach and accompanying them in their drive. The cat, delighted to see his plans were beginning to succeed, ran on before them. And coming across some peasants who were mowing a meadow, he said to them, You good people who are moving here, if you do not tell the king that this meadow you are mowing belongs to the lord, the Marquis of Carabas, you shall all be cut into pieces as small as minced meat. The king did not fail to ask the peasants who meadow it was they were mowing. It belongs to my lord, the Marquis of Carabas, said they all together, for the cat's threat had frightened them. You have a property there? said the king to the Marquis of Carabas. As you say, sire, for it's a meadow which yields an abundant crop every year. Master Cat, who still kept in advance of the party, came up to some reapers and said to them, You, good people, who are you reaping, if you do not say that all this corn belongs to my lord, the Marquis of Carabas, you shall all be cut into pieces as small as minced meat. The king, who passed by a minute afterwards, wished to know whom belonged all the cornfields he saw. To my lord, the Marquis of Carabas repeated the reapers, and the king again congratulated the marquise on his property. The cat, still continuing to run before the coach, uttered the same threat to everyone he met. And the king was astonished at the great wealth of my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. Master Cat, at the length, arrived at the castle, the owner of which was an ogre, the richest ogre ever known, for all the lands through which the king had driven belonged to the lord of this castle. The king took care to find who the ogre was, and what he was able to do. Then he asked to speak with him, saying that he did not like to pass so near his castle without doing himself the honor of paying his respects to him. The ogre received him as civilly as an ogre can, and made him sit down. I have been told that you have the power of changing yourself into all kinds of animals, that you could, for instance, transform yourself into a lion or an elephant. Tis is true, and to prove it to you, you shall see me become a lion. The cat was so frightened when he saw a lion in front of him that he quickly scrambled up into the gutter, not without difficulty and danger, on account of his own boots, which were worse than useless for walking on the tiles. Shortly afterwards, seeing that the ogre had resumed his natural form, the cat climbed down again and admitted that he had been terribly frightened. I have also been assured, but I cannot believe it, that you have the power besides of taking the form of the smallest animal, for instance, that of a rat or a mouse. I confess to you, I hold this to be utterly impossible. Impossible, you shall see. He immediately changed himself into a mouse and began running about the floor. The cat no sooner caught sight of it than pounced upon it and ate it. In the meanwhile, the king, seeing the fine castle of the ogre as he was driving past, thought that he should go inside. The cat, who heard the noise of the coach rolling over the drawbridge, ran to meet it, and said to the king, Your majesty is welcome to the castle of my lord, the Marquis of Carabas. How, my lord Marquis, this castle belongs to you? Nothing could be finer than this courtyard and all these buildings which surround it. Let us see the inside of it, if you please. The Marquis handed out the young princess, and following the king who led the way upstairs, they entered a grand hall where they found prepared a magnificent repast which the ogre had ordered in expectation of some friends who were to have visited him that very day. 
but who did not venture to enter where they heard the king was there. The king, as greatly delighted with the excellent qualities of my lord the Marquis of Carabas and his daughter, who was more than ever in love with him, seeing what great wealth he possessed, said to him, after having drunk five or six bumpers, It depends entirely on yourself, my lord Marquis, whether or not you become my son-in-law. The Marquis, making several profound bows, accepted the honor the king offered him, and that same day was married to the princess. The cat became a great lord and never ran again after mice, except for his amusement. Mural, be the advantage never so great of owning a superb estate. From sire to son descended, young men oft find on industry, combined with ingenuity, they better have depended. Moral two, if the son of a miller so quickly could gain the heart of a princess, it seems pretty plain. With good looks and good manners and some aid from dress, the humblest need not quite despair of success. Close reading by me, Mackenzie Marler. Did I like this story? No, I do not like this fairy tale. Because at the first, the youngest son is given the worst inheritance from his father. The other two sons receive things that will be able to help them thrive in the world and lead good lives, while the young son describes his future as, when I have eaten my cat and made a muff of his skin, I must die of hunger. In the youngest son mine, the cat is worth nothing but just food, and that's not going to help him survive the rest of his life, so he's pretty upset. But the cat, in order for him not to die from being eaten, he says that I need these things in order to help you. And throughout the entire story, the cat is just doing sneaky things that are very clever and mischievous in order to help the youngest son. He ends up making the youngest son a lord, and then the lord only, he receives all of the glory. I thought it was interesting that the son, who is now my lord of Marquis of Carabas, did not question how he was somehow a lord, and that the peasants and reapers all said that they are upkeeping his property. He completely knows that this is not his property. Without a blink of an eye, he says, as you say, sire, for it is a meadow which yields an abundant crop every year. Throughout the entire story, the cat does everything while the son does nothing, and I do not think that is a good message. A word that stood out to me was master. Once custody of the cat was transferred to the son, the cat automatically calls him master. Even though the story takes place in a place that is not in yours or my time, I would not expect a normal cat to accept that someone is his master. Cats have a sense of entitlement and that they are above everyone else. However, in this story, the cat will do anything for his master. As a dog person, I think this is something my dogs would absolutely do for me, but never a cat. I think a cat would want to keep the animals it has captured for himself instead of bringing them to a king to help his master. A phrase that stood out to me was, you shall all be cut into pieces as small as mince meat. I believe this phrase is used because the people that the cat is speaking to, when this phrase is used against them, is people of poor status. The first group that the cat says this to is peasants, and the second group is reapers. I believe he uses the word meat to show that they are nothing but flesh and bones, and that they use mince because they are very small people and have nothing to do in the world. Also, the number three stood out. The number is referenced three times. The first is the three sons, the second is when the cat brought animals to the king for two or three months, and the third time is when the son glances at the princess two or three times. Not only is three referenced, it is referenced three times. In Chinese culture, it is believed that groups of three that contain the number three are extremely lucky. I believe this relates to the story because even though the cat is clever, lots of luck was required for him to pull everything off. I felt confused for most of the fairy tale. I do not understand why a king would want animals dead from cat. As Michael described before, the king is a guileless fool. He lacks common sense and is willing to go with the flow. I can't imagine a king who would be so fond of a cat that brought him dead animals. He liked the cat so much that just because the cat said something, he believed it to be true. This plays into the cat's ability to trick him to believe the son is a lord because he is able to sneak away to plan things so the son can look like he is a lord of great wealth. If the king, if the king had even a little common sense, 
he would have most likely realized that something was strange. I also felt upset because the cat had done so much for the son or my Lord Marquis of Carabas and does not receive a thank you, like I said earlier. Even though the cat probably only did these things so he could not be eaten, the cat went through a tremendous amount of work to make the son a prince. Thankfully, the son did provide the cat with supplies he needed in order to work his magic. However, I am rooting for the cat to accomplish everything he sends out to do. I think the cat is a very kind-hearted character and just wants the best for his master, except when it comes to wanting to chop up people and to mince meat. Then he is not a very nice character. The cat is even willing to go up to an ogre. The ogre scares him for a second and thought that the cat was going to be eaten when he turned into a lion. Thankfully, the cat was smart enough to play into the ogre's ego and challenge him to turn into a mouse. The ogre accepted the challenge and the cat casually ate the mouse-shaped ogre. Once the ogre was on, the castle became his master's. Even though the cat is not thanked, I'm rooting for him throughout the whole story. I definitely would like him to be my cat. I identify with the cat in a sense of wanting to help others. I do like to help others even if I do not receive anything in return. I especially want to help those in their time of need. As an aspiring physical therapist, I want to help others and problem solve in order to think of a solution to help them in the best possible way. The cat is faced with multiple obstacles with his sneaky personality and is able to avoid the situation to continue on the path to making his master a prince. Even though I will help people more ethically than the cat, I do like that the cat is willing to put those he loves before himself. I may not do all of this all the time, but it's definitely something to strive for. I thought it was interesting how clothes played such an important role in the story. Nothing in good fortune happened until the cat and his master were in desirable clothes. And that is one of the morals, and I do not think that is a good moral, like Julia said earlier. I think is the story is about putting others before yourself, even though it is not portrayed in the best possible way. Because the Cat does do evil things, but it is to help his master. You know, I kind of uh, kind of hate to disagree, but I actually did enjoy this story. You know, a little bit of hot take there. Uh, I enjoyed the story because I thought that it was like making the most of the circumstances that you had. And it was kind of like, okay, well, I did not get the same thing as my siblings got. But um, I was able to kind of ultimately end up with a better situation. And I thought that like the character development within it was pretty good too, because it's like the cat is acting as this character who's able to bring, you know, game to a king, even though that's not something that the king should be looking for in and of itself. He's kind of building up this credibility, right? And at the end of it, he's actually able to make something out of it. And it is very unethical in like today's standards, but I think that it is an interesting story because it's like, okay, I think what the story is trying to say is that if you try hard enough to impress people or just build up a reputation with people, they're going to believe anything. Um, and like that's obviously evident with the king who is a fool. Uh, the word that I thought that stood out to me was uh, the word poor. And it stood out in the beginning uh, when they described him as a poor fellow. And I didn't know if they were trying to say, you know, it's like, oh, look at this like poor guy in terms of material wealth or we should be looking at him as he's in a poor situation, like he didn't get the best of luck. So I think those kind of terms kind of collide together. And also, like like we were talking about in class, you know, fairy tales were ultimately for like the working class and poor people. So, you know, it kind of like comes together in the sense that this is a story perhaps about a poor person. And it makes it a little bit more relatable to kind of the origin of fairy tales in and of themselves, which is kind of meta, but I think it's important to talk about. The story kind of gives me the feeling of, you know, fake it till you make it, I guess. Uh, because that's what the cat did, is he was able to kind of like lie and get his way for pretty much the entire story. And he was able to make somebody into a king, or he was able to marry them into royalty, which is pretty impressive. And that's all dependent on the fact that the king was just a bumbling idiot. But still, um, 
it happened. So I think I think the story gives me a sense of like confidence is key and not in a good way. Like he was able to do this and it was only because the king was an idiot. I don't think I identify with any of the characters in the story. Um, I don't lie to people in order to like get ahead and I don't think I'm a bumbling idiot. Um, though if you're to listen to the raw audio of this podcast, you may think that I am. Um, but I don't think I'm a bumbling idiot and I don't think I... I'm like the king. I don't think I'm like the cat. I don't think I'm like the prince charming. So I don't identify with anybody in the story. What is this work about? I think the story is about more than anything, kind of using your wits and circumstances to outsmart people who are in power because just because you do have a position of authority doesn't inherently make you smart. Um, I think that's something that's proven in the story by the fact that the king doesn't even know who owns the land around him. And I think that A very contemporary example of that is just because you may be in the highest office of the land does not make you an inherently smart person. And I think that it's using your wits to outsmart people um, just because the cat's able to kind of establish like this rapport with the king and he's like, okay, well, if you believe me now, you can believe me in the most crazy of circumstances. It's kind of establishing like credibility and he's able to basically do whatever he wants after that. After reading this story i'm gonna have to agree with michael in the sense i did enjoy reading the story i thought it was like just your typical fairy tale which is kind of why i liked it there was a princess there was magic an animal helper that acts as a fairy godmother and a protagonist um the part where the story kind of loses my interest is the fact that there isn't a clear positive moral presence which is really my only issue with the story. Rather than having like kind of any moral, it seems to promote lying and cheating and like deceitfulness. The cat, for instance, the cat tricks the king and princess into believing his master is a lord. Uh, He then tricks the peasants into lying to the king and then tricks the ogre in order to eat him and in the end has no repercussions for his actions. So again, it seems as if this story is kind of promoting all this like mischievousness and I personally wouldn't agree with any of that. After reading it, again, back to the whole moral issue, I don't think uh, when Charles Perrault was maybe writing the story, he had any of that in mind in terms of leaving the readers with any positive kind of value coming out with it. Uh, In terms of the words that stand out to me when I read the story, the story was written in the 1600s and was originally written in French, so... I think right away you're gonna get a sense that there are words and phrases that we don't hear on a day-to-day basis, uh, such as the word muff, which I looked up. It is a tube made of fur or other warm material into which the hands are placed for warmth. So we would just call that what, gloves, I guess. <laughs> Another phrase that they use is sedate, uh, with a sedate and serious air. So the cat says this to his master when he's like trying to convince him that he's actually a good gift rather than a bad one. There's also the narrator says a little versed in the wiles of the world, which is just like a, I feel like a fancy way to say like a, to call someone who isn't very familiar with the world or is very like innocent, I guess. So just a bunch of phrases that kind of don't match up with what we say today. Again, is there anything about how it's written that stands out? Just again, the story being written in the 1600s and being written in French. It's kind of just like old terminology and like very fancy slang and whatnot. 
What is the work about? I think, again, the work seems to convey a story that argues in favor of lying and deceit. I guess also agreeing with Mackenzie, I think there is something to be said about how the cat is kind of doing everything for his master. And in a sense, that could be seen as a good thing, like he's doing all this just to please his master and make him happy and get him what he wants. But I think there's also something to be said that the cat might be selfish because while the master does get what he want, the last line is, the cat became a great lord and never again ran after mice except for his own amusement. So it's possible the entire time the cat could have just been looking out for himself. And I think the the fact that like the cat just kind of had something to prove to his master, like I'm sure like when the brother received the cat, I think him and the other brothers and the son all kind of or and the father might maybe knew that the cat was not that great and the cat has something to prove throughout this whole story. So that could also be something that Charles Pro is playing at, like just the cat trying to prove himself. I don't think I really relate to anyone in the story. The protagonist, the youngest brother, or the Lord Marquis, um, seems like a bit of a lazy character. He literally doesn't do anything or say anything pretty much the entire time. He doesn't even thank his cat for getting him anything. Yeah, the cat's the one who puts the whole story in motion. As for the cat, again, just like cats in general, when you think of them, you think of kind of like mischievous animals and like, I guess they're kind of smart and cunning. I really wouldn't connect myself with like cats in general or just the cat in the story because he just kind of lies and cheats his way throughout this whole story and I personally do not try to do that. And then the king was just kind of also kind of an idiot, so... Yeah, I don't think I really connect with anyone. Hi, I'm Shannon. I'm also going to do a close reading of Puss in Boots. So first off, did I like this story? I definitely did like this story because I do really gravitate towards archetypes that have to do with a character or an individual really trying to attain something that he or she doesn't have. And I think especially within our society and the U.S., we also gravitate towards stories that kind of fulfill a underdog archetype where a character is trying to achieve or attain something that they don't have. And I definitely felt like this story and this character's struggle with morality in terms of attaining that something, which in this case was wealth and power, I think that's something that people can really relate to in terms of kind of struggling with the means that you're going to go about in terms of attaining and getting to your final destination. And I think stories that also have a journey where, you know, someone chooses either a moral conscious way or a not moral conscious way, you know, such as in this case, the cat deciding to use trickery to attain power and wealth. I think that is really relatable. And, you know, a lot of stories really do take either or path. So I think this one is a path that is very common and I definitely did enjoy reading it. I also really enjoyed the symbolism that was presented throughout Puss in Boots' tale. So more specifically, there was a quote that stood out to me and I thought the symbolism within the quote was really powerful or it just stood out to me. So the quote is when the cat says, um, I have been told that you have the power of changing yourself into all kinds of animals, that you could, for instance, transform yourself into a lion or an elephant. 
I really wanted to look more closely at the symbolism between a lion and an elephant. The animals that they chose I thought really stood out to me. The symbolism within a lion as an animal, the lions represent strength, courage, and leadership, while elephants represent strength in addition to power. So I really thought the animals that were chosen really demonstrated the influences and the main values that were really represented and portrayed in Puss in Boots. And so those were, you know, striving to attain power and wealth and all of these attributes that were really the vocal point of the story, I felt. And so I also felt like the story kind of showed a rags to riches plot line and kind of the journey one went through in order to attain these things through trickery. So I thought, you know, the rags to riches and underdog archetypes are both storylines that I feel like are the most present in modern day cinema as well as modern day storylines. So for that reason, I felt like I did really relate to the story because I do love those archetypes and I feel like those have really interesting paths that they can take, especially with character development and all of that, choosing between right and wrong and morality. Uh, so for those reasons, I felt like I really enjoyed the, st- the story. And yeah, I really enjoyed the story and it gave me feelings of just I could really relate to having to choose, you know, between two very different drastic paths in terms of how to get somewhere. This character definitely chose trickery, and I would hope I wouldn't choose that route to get what I want, but I definitely could understand the struggle in terms of thinking, you know, irrationally and choosing the not moral option and route to take. So I did identify with some of the people represented because we all go through struggles in terms of choosing how to get to the final destination that we want and how to attain, you know, power and wealth, which I feel like are very common things that people try to attain in today's life. So I definitely thought that if I were to boil down Puss in Boots, that's really what it was about, trying to prove yourself and really attain something that is really important to you. And I think power and wealth are two things that in today's world, people really do get greedy about and really want, and I feel like regardless of who you are, you want that at some point in your life. Um, so I thought that's what this was about, this story was about, at least to me, that's what stuck out. Hi, it's Michael. Thank you so much for listening to our episode, and thank you to everybody at freesound.org who uploaded sounds that we used for our episode. Thanks to uh, Vincent Malstaff for the horse sound. Thank you to Rolaine for the garden shears sound. Thank you to Glanier de Sons for the river. And thank you to Tristan Lohengren for the medieval introduction that we had at the beginning and end of our show. So thank you for listening to our episode and have a good one. Archetypes and Anarchy is produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and researched and written by my spring 2018 Introduction to Fiction students at the University of Oregon. Our theme music is Music Box by The Underscore Orchestra, and our closing music is Wolf, It's Really Rather Rad by High Arches, both of which are available under a Creative Commons license at the Free Music Archive. The sound of the wolf that lives in the woods That comes to my back door from time to time Shake the hand of the sun that burns above 
reaches down over everyone. Got your Jekyll and Hyde, your monster inside. Pouring water over your fire. I incur us a soul, then I need to go back into the woods. I'm told not a single living thing needs to be left out. You can find in the gut what's missing in yourself. There's a spider where that connects heads connected by the number nine can you think in visions and breathe in rhythms dream an ocean over your lips it brings a deeper meaning a powerful feeling brings us the myths we're told and it's only clean water that supports the things that we're trying to grow not a single living cell needs to be left out You can find in the garden what's missing in yourself Have you seen the way the speaker makes a pattern in the sand When the frequency is just right, oh man, it's really rather rare 